Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Graham Phillips back with us. I'll tell you a little bit about Graham. Also, this book, Strange Fate, an extraordinary true story of paranormal discovery. He wrote with Jody Russell, who lives in the Los Angeles area. Graham lives in the United Kingdom. He's been one of Britain's best-selling nonfiction authors for 40 years, has published 20 books concerning historical mysteries. They include investigations into the death of Alexander the Great, the Secret Life of William Shakespeare, The Mystery of King Arthur. His book also covers his search for historical relics as the Holy Grail. He's considered a real-life Indiana Jones. Graham, welcome back. It's been a couple of years. Hi, George. Yes, it has, but uh, I'm still alive and still going. Good for you. And how's Jody doing? What do we hear about her? She's fine, but I, I'm not sure if she's listening to this. She might be asleep, but she's in Los Angeles, so hopefully she's awake and listening. Yeah, it's not too late. It's only a little after midnight, so she might be up. Hi, Jody, cool. wherever you might be. <laughs> hey, Graham, tell us a little bit about Strange Fate. Tell us about this investigation. Well, it's a little bit different to my other historical investigations. It started off as an historical investigation into a secret society that existed in the mid-19th century based in central England. They claimed to have found, in an old burial mound in central England, they claimed to have found this small stone um, that was shaped in the shape of a heart. They called it the Heart of the Rose. And they believed that it had extraordinary supernatural powers specifically the power to alter fate, time, even to cross into different universes. Now, they wrote about this in the mid-Victorian period, way before things like the multiverse became popular. So I, I thought it was fascinating that they even claimed to have done this sort of stuff. But in the end, Jody and I decided to go in search of this stone that this strange group called the Me and I group had claimed to have hidden. 
this group? What does the, the name mean, me and I are? Well, it's an anagram for I am one. They believed that different cultures throughout the world had different ways of, uh, different forms of mysticism, like in China, India, the ancient United Kingdom, and elsewhere. And they believed that they were all different ways of looking at the same thing. So it was firstly an anagram for I am one, but it was also the name of an ancient land in what is now Turkey uh, that they believed the stone was originally made over 3,000 years ago. Now you were looking for, as you mentioned, the heart of the rose. What is that lost relic? Well, it hadn't been, I, well, I hadn't found any reference to it before. As you mentioned in your introduction, I researched things like the Holy Grail and gone in search of that, investigating all yeah. sorts of uh, different uh, uh, references in history to it. But there wasn't really any other references to this Heart of the Rose other than what this me and I group wrote about it. But they claimed, for example, that in 1851, on, on May the 4th specifically, that one of the daughters of the, one of the people involved in this, a girl called Mary Heath, um, w went into an old burial mound in central England at a place called the Bridestones. Uh, it was uh, around about 1,500 years old, which, historically speaking, dates from the kind of period that King Arthur is said to have lived. She entered this tomb while an archaeological dig was going on there and somehow managed to find this small stone, the heart of the rose. When she came out... She said that she had felt impelled to dig in a certain place, and there she found it. And afterwards, she became psychic, is the only way to describe it. She had all sorts of strange abilities. She started telling her parents and others in this group that there, all sorts of things about themselves that they couldn't have known. And she eventually proved herself by taking them to an old ruined church on the uh, not far from where this burial mound was and she said that if you dig down here this part of the ruins you'll find a stone slab and underneath it is an old crypt containing old documents belonging to the knights templars from the middle ages all sealed in lead containers and she was right i mean five or six of these people all wrote separate accounts of how this happened. So they'd been led to find some ancient uh, hundreds of year old manuscripts and a, a lost crypt by a seven year old girl, which is absolutely astonishing. Incredible research. Is this stuff similar to like Stonehenge? They, the, 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 the burial mound is like similar to Stonehenge, yes. Um, Right next to it, it's about 1,500 years old, it is thought to have contained one of the last druids of Britain, the old priesthood of the Celts before the Anglo-Saxons invaded. And it was thought to have been a woman who was the inspiration behind the Arthurian legend of Morgan Le Fay, the the uh, wizardess, if you like, of the Arthurian legend, or Morgana, as she's sometimes called. So she was supposed to be buried seemingly with this stone that gave her remarkable powers that this little girl found. 
Um, but right next to it, there was a stone circle that was even older, about the age of Stonehenge, and something similar to Stonehenge. There's an area called Bidolf Grange, where this group met back in the 1800s, you write. What's so strange about this place? Well, once they found this stone, and this little girl had led them to all these ancient manuscripts and seen the talismans that had belonged to the Knights Templar group in the Middle Ages, um, they started this Mianaya group based at Bidolf Grange, an old Victorian mansion. Well, it wasn't old then, it was just built then. Right. And it was on the grounds or in the estate of this Bidolf Grange that this burial mound had been, and also this old uh, ecclesiastical building where they discovered this crypt. What they'd started to do then was practice various ancient forms of mysticism. They built a mock, uh, a, a reconstructed Egyptian tomb on the estate. They built a Chinese sanctuary like a pagoda and a pool and other uh, ancient Chinese mystical sites. They built a Celtic glen, as they called it, which was basically what the British, ancient Britons used to uh, worship at, which was like a sacred spring uh, coming out of the rocks, a pool, and also standing stones, some of which they actually moved from right next to the Bridestones, this tomb nearby. So they built these, and they also built an underground Roman temple right under the house. And it was here that they met and performed whatever strange ceremonies or whatever other mystical practices they did in the belief that they could alter fate or even, in some cases, believe that they could travel through time or to other worlds. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
all these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While your investigation was underway, Graham, didn't weird things start happening to you too? Well, yeah. At first, I was disregarding this as an historical investigation into a bunch of people with rather weird beliefs. I did think that there must have been something pretty weird going on just beyond historical, if you like, and more mystical, especially because so many witnesses claimed that this young girl was able to perform uh, amazing feats of prophecy or whatever you'd want to call it. But um, we were, when Jody and I visited the, the, where the tomb was, it's just a load of old stones that remain now where this little girl, Mary Heath, her name was, had found this stone. Um, we went there and suddenly, it was a nice sunny day, suddenly the rain started pouring down, there was thunder, lightning, far more violent weather than you'd normally get in England. And the, but there was a massive cloud directly over us that seemed to have come from nowhere, where all around us, it was completely clear. And the, the thunderstorm Weird. seemed to be directly overhead. And while we were there, we, we, we filmed the, the, what was going on while we were there uh, on, a, uh, on, a, on a, a phone camera, and what seemed to be a kind of ball of light seemed to shoot from these stones and into the nearby bushes. Now, people said it could be lens flare or something, but experts had examined it, so they couldn't really explain it. But it might have been something to do with the electrical storm. One way or the other, the storm lasted for about five minutes and was only present when we were there at the stones and, and nowhere else in the area around. That's pretty dramatic, isn't it? Do you think you stumbled into some kind of like parallel universe? Well, at the time, we just thought we'd just stumbled into some rather strange um, weather phenomenon. But shortly after this, we began to find out that things were rather different to how we remembered them. For a start, uh, Biddulph Grange, the Victorian house nearby where all this, um, these people had met, was um, burnt, it, there was a fire there that we, as far as we know, the research that we'd carried out, Jody and I, a fire that had taken place in 1897. We'd written all about this and we'd done all the research about it. It was still in, in the books that I'd written referring to it. But suddenly we went back to the Grange house itself, which is now open to the public, and one of the, we were just discussing the, the history of the place with one of the guides who suddenly told us that this fire had taken place in 1896. And we said, no, oh, no, 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 it's 1897 because you'll see it there on um, uh, one of the pictures that you've got showing the Grange as it used to be. But no, it had changed. 
And that was just the first of a whole series of small little incidents that could be down to faulty memory. But as these strange changes in dates and reality carried on, we had to think we were in some other kind of world. For example, there was one person we'd been talking to a few days before who didn't even remember us. That's weird. Now, are there any members of this group through Offspring still alive today? Well, this is what we're still trying to find out. I mean, we've been investigating this for a good couple of years. I mean, on and off, I've been looking into this group for about 40 years. It's only now I've gotten to write the book about it. But um, we, the, the, the last of the, these people were called the Heath family that lived at Biddulph Grange and ran the whole thing. Mary Heath, a little girl, ran it for a while when she, when she was an adult. Her sister-in-law, a person called Laura Heath, took over. She died in 1897, and after that, the group seems to have broken up. Um, there were offspring, but these people didn't seem to know very much about it. We found one family who had old documents written by the Me and I group that were kind of hidden away up in their attic. They really didn't understand the significance of them and had no idea of what their ancestors had been doing. So we're still looking for people today who may still today be carrying on whatever this group were doing. Were they like uh, strange people in that in those days? I mean, were they violent at all? Do you know? No, not not in the slightest. The interesting thing is, uh, most of them were women. They came from rich families uh, that lived in stately homes throughout Britain. They they who then travelled to Bidolf Grange for these meetings. They included a number of female pre-Raphaelite artists. They were mainly women, as I say, female pre-Raphaelite artists, writers, and also people who were pacifists, and specifically a lot of women who were into the uh, early, uh, early sort of years of feminism. They, they were some of the people that were involved in um, campaigning for votes for women, women's rights generally, at a time when that was extremely unpopular. And from the few writings we have got from this group, it seems that they wanted to try and add mysticism to their intentions of changing the world to some degree so that women got a far better lot. They were known as the first wave feminists. And a lot of the ones who started the votes for women campaigns, not both in America and this country and other women's rights groups, were also members of this mystical me and I group who seem to be trying to use the paranormal, if you like, or the supernatural to change the world in favor of more equality for women. So opposite of being violent. Graham, when Lewis Carroll wrote Alice in Wonderland, was he somehow stumbling into this too? Yes, he did. It was uh, quite interesting because just a few months after this little girl, Mary Heath, discovered this stone and pretty much started the whole thing off once she'd found these, uh, this, this old crypt. That's when the group started. A few months later, in the summer of 1851, her father and mother went to stay at a, a nearby other stately home um, belonging to a man called Lord Halifax, who was a member of the British government. He was an extraordinarily wealthy man. 
Mary's father, Robert, was into mining, uh, coal mining and uh, iron production. He was staying with Lord Halifax as, uh, as um, ongoing meetings and discussions about mining rights on the Halifax estate. So Robert and Anne, his wife, went with them, and so did little Mary, uh, the oldest child, who was just seven at the time, went and stayed with them at this house. Interestingly, at exactly that time, Lewis Carroll was the tutor to the children of Lord Halifax. And it was at that point that he first came up with the ideas in tandem for both of the Alice books, Alice in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass. And it wasn't until many years later that the story was published, but he always claimed he had based his story in 1851 on a real little girl who, according to the books, is exactly seven and a half years old. Now, some people have suggested that he based it on one of the children, the girls of Lord Halifax, but none of them were that age. But Mary Heath, who was staying there, who was probably also for a, for a short while tutored by Lewis Carroll, was that exact age. She was staying there. She just recently, remember, crawled into a hole in the ground into a tomb. She'd come out saying she'd been to a fantastic land where all sorts of strange things had happened. Jeez. They put that down to imagination. And this may be where was, he was inspired to write the story of Alice in Wonderland. That's fascinating. Might they been this group stumbling into time travel? Well, the time travel bit is quite weird. Um, that they claimed that they could see through time. They didn't. The, the, unfortunately, the evidence we've got is rather fragmentary in documentation. But what happened on one occasion? Jody and I went into the mock Egyptian tomb that I was telling you about, into a central dank, cold chamber that's there. And in there, there's the figure of a, a statue they put of an ancient Egyptian god called Arne, also known as the Ape of Thoth. It's like a, a human-sized baboon creature who was supposed to be the Lord of Time. And in that particular chamber, Jody was uh, filming me, just talking about it for a YouTube thing I was doing. And uh, when the film came out, on it, you can see quite clearly it's dark, but if you you can see that there's a, a figure seemingly of a Victorian lady standing there looking at me as I walk past. And a couple of weeks before that, Jodie had had this vision. She does meditation quite often, and sometimes she does get um, experiences of things that are, are you know that are, that prove to be accurate that she couldn't have known about, and she had dreamt of this actual event taking place, and she'd seen me, in the future to her, standing next to this woman, exactly like that, like it appeared on this film, a woman in Victorian clothes, who was seemingly was able to see me because she turned and looked at me as she went past. So it appears that uh, there was both past, present, and future colliding in one place, and that's just one example. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. 
For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.